Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Native American Studies. I'm Andrew Epstein, and thanks for listening to this podcast for the New Books Network. Each month, we pick a newly published work in Native American and Indigenous Studies and spend the hour speaking with the author. Today, I'm joined by Linford D. Fisher, Assistant Professor of History at Brown University and author of the masterful new book, The Indian Great Awakening, Religion and the Shaping of Native Cultures in Early America, out in 2012 from Oxford University Press. Calling the colonial record for signs of indigenous agency and communal change, Fisher tells a nuanced and compelling story of the Mohegan, Narragansett, Pequot, Shinnecock, and other native nations in the 17th and 18th century, navigating an evangelical milieu imposed by settler colonialism, sometimes converting and joining white churches, sometimes starting their own, and sometimes rejecting the new religion outright. Especially in a region like New England, notorious for erasing its indigenous past and thus marginalizing its indigenous present, Fisher's work is a needed intervention. Native people were indeed central actors, not passive recipients in transformative moments like the First Great Awakening. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Linford Fisher, welcome to New Books in Native American Studies. Thanks for having me, Andrew. I really appreciate it. Sure. Well, today we'll be discussing your new book, The Indian Great Awakening, Religion and the Shaping of Native Cultures in Early America, published earlier this year by Oxford University Press. Before we get into the fascinating content and the original analysis this book offers, I just want to make a a shallow point and just point out how much I appreciate the cover aesthetic of this book, the the (laughs) stark image of the cross and the feather. I'm finding that uh, increasingly academic books are finally catching up uh, uh, to being as hip as as our peers in the rest of the publishing world, and I'm not (laughs) ashamed to say that I am digging it. This is a book I'm proud to have on my shelf. But uh, in any case, it's even more interesting what's inside, of course, and I look forward to talking about that. But before we get to all of that, I'd ask you to introduce yourself and uh, talk a little bit about your intellectual journey to this project. Sure, and I should say, too, just to follow up on your point about the cover, that this is really Oxford's genius. Uh, We had talked through different options. I had a photo, and perhaps I can return to this, from the inside of the Mohegan Church in Mm -hmm. Connecticut that actually juxtaposed these two images, uh, and the photo didn't work for various reasons, so they actually extracted the cross, and um, we found another eagle feather to use. Uh, So it it really, it ended up really nice, uh, but I can't take credit for it, as uh, with many things about the publishing process. So anyway, uh, but I do appreciate that. Sure, yeah. So in terms of my own uh, background, uh, I teach at Brown University. I'm an assistant professor of history here, and I um, teach a variety of things, mostly pre-1800. So I am a colonial American historian, teach uh, material culture in colonial America, teach the history of religion, um, actually the whole way up to the present, uh, but also teach Native American history, and also branching out into issues of slavery and the Atlantic world as well. And the sort of path that got me to this point is long and convoluted, as with many academics, it seems, 
Uh, but it started, as most things do, I guess, back in grad school when I was sort of handed, um, you know, a series of classes or I guess selected a series of classes and uh, was admitted into Harvard, uh, frankly, to uh, work on the 19th century, late 19th century social reform and had been interested in the um, settlement house movement. And um, But I took this class with David Hall on colonial America, and I think it was actually on the Puritans, and just fell in love with uh, kind of the older documents and different set of issues and questions and so forth. And one of the reasons that I eventually shifted not only from the 19th century but to the 17th century and then from the 17th century and Puritanism to Native Americans is that I realized there was this whole world of – um, this almost alternate universe of early American history that I did not know that much about. And I say that to my great shame in a sense. And I think that the more I asked around, the more I realized that um, I wanted to contribute to this emerging field, this emerging scholarship on Native American history. And uh, so as I looked around, the 17th century seemed to be a place that had already been well tilled. And one of the areas that seemed to need the most scholarship and seemed to be the most unclear to me as a graduate student was the post-1675 era. Um, there was this sort of historiographical lacuna between King Philip's War in 1675-1676 and, let's say, the First Great Awakening in the 1740s, or maybe even the French and Indian War of the 1750s and 1760s. So that's really kind of uh, what prompted me to think about this sort of whole area um, and an era, I guess you could say, and how I got to this point um, in terms of researching first the dissertation and then the book. But I'll say, too, that one of the curiosities, and again, part of what prompted me to do what I did in the book, is that I grew up in Pennsylvania in these lovely farmland rolling hills of southeastern Pennsylvania where the Amish and Mennonites are. And you know, if you know the colonial period, you know this area was, uh, you know, rich native land. I mean, this is a, a place where there is just enormous amounts of agricultural production, but also it's a crossroads of several different native empires as well. And I grew up, I went to grade school, middle school, high school, even college in southeastern Pennsylvania, and never once really engaged any of this history in a substantial way. And so moved to Massachusetts in 1999 and for the first time kind of ran into uh, serious Native American history. So you could say, well, it's a result of my you know, uh, upbringing or the schools I attended or whatever else. But I think that this actually reflects a wider um, inability of uh, white Americans today to understand and adequately sort of put these different historical pieces together in our educational systems and so forth in a way that makes sense. And so I really have a, a sort of an educator's heart in this process, too, that I want people to think differently about the colonial period and when they think about Native Americans and not just think about uh, Pocahontas or Squanto. Or <laughs> True. Yeah, actually, I'd love to return to that um, educational component uh, a little bit later on in the in the interview. I'm, I guess I'm also curious why what attracted you to the religious component here. Um, you know, not just in terms of Native American history, but but why was religion a framework that uh, was attractive for you to explore this period with? Sure, I think it's a, it's a very uh, good question and one that I think maybe uh, I can only answer in in part because there's no 
real rhyme or reason sometimes why you stumble upon the particular focus you do. But I do know that I uh, it was a part of my training. So I went uh, majored in Bible and religious studies um, in my undergrad. Uh, theological studies, uh, went to a theological seminary to get some more theological background. And then yeah, even at Harvard was in sort of religious studies program. And so, you know, had a lot of religious studies and theological background that um, made sense to build on that strength. But while at Harvard, I also was adopted by the early Americanists. And so really embraced kind of the traditional early American perspective and, and historical methods and so forth as well. So uh, ended up graduating as, you know, fully trained as a colonial American historian, but with this sort of uh, rich depth of theological um, religious studies understanding. In some ways in the book, in other ways, uh, there's more that could have been done theologically that I didn't do, um, but that wasn't my main focus necessarily. Mm-hmm. So you write in the acknowledgments uh, that reconstructing the life worlds of mostly non-literate peoples requires uh, imaginative historical detective work. Um, it's not the easiest thing to do. I mean, you're parsing colonial documents that are often ambiguous for signs of communal change, of agency, for accommodation and conversion. You also, I noticed, conduct a number of oral histories, which is not something people might expect for a book about the 17th and 18th century. I'd love to hear a bit more about the research process, your methodology uh, in, in tackling this subject. Sure. Well, you know, this is always one of the most difficult pieces of doing Native history. And I will say, first off, that I'm at a severe disadvantage in many ways because I myself am not a Native person. And there's always a controversy about non-Native people doing Native history. And I recognize that that tension is there up front. And yet I feel like, uh, especially when I first started poking around in this field and this, these set of questions, um, I, I didn't really know of any Native people who, who were trained academically, who were writing books on these kinds of topics. And even in 10 years, 10, 12 years, this has changed fairly dramatically. And, and I think that with every year or two that comes uh, along, you find more and more Native scholars in academia, which I just I, I applaud and love and uh, would love to sort of um, be you know pushed out of the field in a sense, as it were, as a non-Native person. But anyway, uh, the question of doing Native history for a non-Native person is tricky, and sources are always a problem, that no matter who you are. Even if you're a Native person, you still have to wrestle with the same kinds of sources uh, and the lack thereof. So when I approached this uh, initially and, and kind of landed on a topic and proposed it to my advisors, uh, I had a few people uh, say, look, I don't think you can do this. Um, there's just not that much on, on the 18th century that can answer the questions that you're asking. And uh, so I went through a, you know, a week or two of being depressed about that and then received a lot of encouragement from fellow grad students who said, uh, that's not true. You, you need to keep on pushing ahead. And in the end, as I say in the introduction, what I was shocked is that I simply could not use all the stuff I found. And so once you start to be willing to use non-native sources, right? So these um, colonial documents, whether they're wills or petitions or letters or sermons or, you know, journals or, you know, uh, even um, stuff that natives produce themselves, um, but especially things that natives aren't producing, if you're willing to read them in a different way, which I think historians have been convincingly doing for the past, you know, decade or two at least, 
uh, and kind of read between the lines and sort of read them in a, in a way that attempts to decolonize the way in which natives are being constructed in them, you find a ton of information. And I'm not one of these people that tries to hear or has this argument about authentic native voices, but there is something to try to understand native experience uh, when you read these documents differently. So there's a whole collection of, of things that I just listed uh, and even more that I was able to sort through uh, from southeastern New England. But then there's also, by the time you hit, uh, especially in the region I'm looking at, by the time you reach the early 18th century, you do have natives themselves who are writing petitions and so forth. So the, the question of the tricky question of authorship in terms of these petitions that are written up by a non-native colonial person, individual, and then are sort of signed with X marks or little figures by Native people. Um, those kinds of problems um, at some point become less important because you do have Native author documents that uh, from start to finish are Native um, composed. But it's, it's tricky, even aside from the uh, documents themselves, you have to interpret these in, uh, in various ways and um, uh, it, it's, a, it's a highly interpretive process, and yet there's a lot of, of fun and joy, I think, in sort of recovering these voices and these situations and perspectives in the process. And, and how about this, this component of, of interviewing people from uh, Native communities still in New England now? I, I noticed some personal interviews that you conducted in, in the spring of 2011. How did those factor in? Yes, yeah, so another piece of this that I wasn't sure how this was going to you know, go over with my initially with the dissertation committee, which I did the first interviews in 2007 and then followed up in 2011 after grad school, obviously. And uh, actually, these, these ended up being some of the most meaningful points in the whole research process and something that was central to how I was reconceptualizing the questions I was asking or this, this notion of conversion, which we can talk about more in a minute is trying to reconceptualize it from a Native perspective. Again, it's somewhat artificial. I'm not Native. I don't live in the colonial period. But to try to think about what it would mean to understand this process through the life worlds, the concerns uh, of Native peoples. And a way for me to do that uh, is to, was to bridge to the present. It's not a straight line. These are very, very different situations from 1720, say, to you know 2011. And yet, what really, really moved me is that in talking with these Native individuals, whether it was Melissa Zobel or Tala Guidin or a number of other people, different people, uh, was sort of the continuities between different perspectives and interpreting kind of religious change in the 17th century and in the present, but also just to sort of hear a different way of understanding even American history. Putting those together, I think, was really important for me to sort of uh, give myself a different perspective in the process from the voices I heard in the 17th century, but also the present. But part of it, too, in the book is I want people to walk away with a firm sense of the ongoing persistence and presence of vitality of these same Native communities. They haven't disappeared. They haven't gone away. They've been around for centuries and centuries, and they've been in some cases, largely ignored, at least until huge casinos pop up on their land and then everybody protests. But that was one of the points, one of the reasons why I wanted to end the book with a series of interviews, uh, because I, I really um, I dread or I fear the possibility that someone might read my book and say, oh, that's all ancient history, and then mm -hmm. the 
the same darn situations in terms of, you know, broken treaties and land loss and, and sort of educational issues and poverty. And mm-hmm. So the cyclical nature of American history of Native experience in America is one of the biggest pieces, I think, um, not just from the colonial period to the present, but also within the book. From the sixth, from the seventeenth century into the eighteenth century to the early nineteenth century, there's a period uh, of different cyclical kind of series of events that I think sometimes when you focus on too narrow of an era, you miss those cycles. Mm-hmm. So uh, as we step back into the the eighteenth and nineteenth century, and or sixth, seventeenth, and eighteenth and nineteenth century, I want to start by asking a bit about the the historical framework. Historians have advanced a number of interpretive frameworks for understanding the the shared world of Indians and settlers before the United States really ascends as the unequivocally dominant colonial power. You have Richard White's middle ground, but also a divided ground, maybe a native ground. Where does this story fit into that literature, and and what do you think historians of this period uh, have missed? Mm -hmm. It's a great question. There's, uh, I think, especially after the publication of Richard White's The Middle Grounds, everybody suddenly rushed to find middle grounds in their different respective corners of North America or South America, wherever mm-hmm. they're living. And that's certainly not what I'm trying to do here. Sure. What drew me to this particular about it uh, in terms of the historical literature. And I found, frankly, when I interviewed people from different native tribes as well, they had very few specifics about this time period uh, as well. Um, but uh, So I wanted to learn more about it. But second of all, I found that uh, it was somewhat unique in a sense because you have this sense in the literature, in New England at least, the New England literature, that uh, something dramatic happens in terms of Indian colonial relations after King Philip's War. And so this this notion of a post-conquest New England was something that really struck me. And to a certain extent, I think that what I found in my book and what I'm sort of relaying in my book reflects this in the sense that you, you really have no attempt at an uprising after King Philip's War uh, in most of New England. I guess you could sort of maybe talk about what's now Maine or New Hampshire or Vermont or something. Um, but, but that's a slightly different region. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I don't know that this fits in neatly, frankly, and that wasn't certainly my, my framing in terms of a divided or a native or middle ground. Um, but I do think that there's something, um, and what I like about those different kinds of models is each one reflects a slightly different take on the negotiation that takes place. And that, I think, is really, again, thinking from a Native perspective, uh, that negotiation is the one constant in the colonial experience. Uh, constantly new pieces being added into sort of Native experience, Native life worlds, dealing with different you know, governors or colonial figures and so forth. Um, and so I don't think there's a sharedness here. This is not... Um, you know the French and uh, and and uh, you know kind of um, Algonquins up around the Great, Great Lakes region, uh, both trying to um, figure each other out. Uh, this is clearly an unequal power dynamic, and yet even within that, 
Native Americans uh, at every point are pushing back, are creating space for themselves, are seeing their neighbors, are even going across the Atlantic to petition first Queen Anne and then King George II and eventually King George III. Uh, it's a very, very dynamic process. And so the idea of a post-conquest New England misses a lot of that dynamism. And so maybe there needs to be a new term to sort of capture that. Mm. Uh, and I, I did not invent one and, and propose one now, uh, but I think that, that it doesn't quite fit in. And yet that dynamism, even in a post-con, uh, post-conquest era, that's what I was trying to capture. Sure. So. I want to talk a bit about bear paws and Bible pages. You open with this fascinating archaeological discovery in 1990, conducted, I should note, in conjunction with the Mashantucket Pequot Nation, um, of an 11-year-old Pequot girl who, who died at some point in the late 17th or early 18th century, who's buried with some surprising and, at first glance, contradictory funerary items. Talk a bit about that story and how it elucidates some of the themes that you expand upon uh, throughout the work. Sure. So I should say, first of all, that it's a bit unfortunate, I guess, to open up the entire book with an example of what I think many Native people would see as a really offensive um, instance of non-Native intrusion on uh, Native burial practices and space and so forth. I know there's a very long and horrible history of, of grave looting and grave raiding and so forth. And But I'm happy to say this was not the case in this instance. Um, it was unfortunate, very, very unfortunate, that the graves were disturbed in the first place by a wealthy Connecticut homeowner who wanted to build an underground shooting range. <laughs> there's a lot of that as well. Um, but uh, despite the unfortunate circumstances that brought this all about, uh, in the process, uh, as you noted, in conjunction with Mashantucket Pequots, uh, some archaeologists were able to sort of sift through some of these uh, graves and make a lot of uh, fascinating historical observations that then the tribe themselves also used. So it was with their permission. So say so that up front just um, – yeah, thank, thanks for that. And that, that's an important thing that you note in the book, and I'm, I'm glad you noted it here as well. I think it's very difficult, and I don't want to be misunderstood on this. Of course, yeah. You know, historians reveling in, in this kind of disruption. But at any rate, uh, once the grave, this particular grave was open, uh, they were surprised, and um, this has been noted by a few different people. It's, you know, uh, not widely known in the literature, but. Um, the reason why it was really fascinating is because, as you say, not only did were there the typical kind of funerary objects, um, such as a pestle, a pot hook, and, and this iron hoe, and some other kinds of, um, you know, bracelets and, and necklaces and so forth, um, and effigies, but there was also this little medicine bundle. And uh, medicine bundles, uh, in terms of the archaeological evidence, are uh, found widely in a variety of different funerary situations among especially Africans and uh, indigenous peoples in the Americas. This one contains um, basically a bear paw, really just a skeletal remains of a bear paw, and a very, very small folded page that um, because the medicine bundle had been up against um, a piece of iron, it had actually uh, preserved the paper to the point that even hundreds of years later, later, they could actually unfold it and look at the contents. It was faded. It wasn't very clear. But some uh, bibliographers got involved in the process and really were able to trace down the source of this, and it comes from Psalm 98. 
and talks about um, salvation and the strong hands of the Lord. Anyway, so I try to pull this apart and figure out what this meant. Uh, and so even if we didn't have the precise text, it would still be very fascinating to have the in one medicine bundle a bear paw and a Bible page together. And I use this at the opening of the book to illustrate the sort of surprising ways I think that natives use uh, religious ideas, religious motifs, religious objects, religious texts even uh, throughout the colonial period that historians have begun to recognize more fully in the past decade or two, but I still think there's a lot of misunderstanding, especially as it relates to conversion. And so one of the biggest things, I think, one of the biggest interventions I'm trying to do in this book is to get people to think differently about um, or to get them to not be so casual about using this word conversion. I'm not trying to argue that we should get rid of it. I'm simply trying to make it comprehensible for Native Americans themselves who would be looking at the way we're describing their religious process, uh, this religious engagement in the 17th century. And it's not clear. Uh, conversion doesn't make sense. This is not a word that is in Native cultures. Um, John Eliot, the 17th century, had to make up a word, uh, the man who stands turned about in Native language in Massachusetts to describe what is this theological Christian notion of conversion. And so once we begin to challenge this idea of um, sort of a, a fossil you know, uh, Judeo-Western Christian notion of conversion, you find a lot of complexity. And this medicine bundle represents that, com that complexity to me. Um, and so I try to unpack sort of, well, how did it get there? Did this girl put together a medicine bundle herself before she died? Did her parents stuff the Bible page in there in hopes that it would help protect her from, you know, whatever comes next or help ease the transition to the afterlife? Uh, was there some sort of um, talismanic power? representing the page itself, uh, we don't really know. There's a lot of questions I ask, and I'm not sure that there's any uh, real solution in terms of the interpretation of it. But it seems clear uh, that this is not the typical way that Puritan ministers would have wanted a native, quote-unquote, convert to use. And I think that's one of the most interesting things. And so you find this over and over again. One point of continuity, I guess, in a slightly different way, is um, in the early 19th century, um, you have an example of someone who uh, publishes a book. His name is Thomas Comic, and he is an Narragansett who moves to New York and then eventually to Wisconsin, and he publishes a, a hymn book, a book of hymns, book of native hymns. And the names of the hymns are actually either native tribes or native individuals. Um, and yet the content of each hymn is pretty straightforward Christian in terms of his theology. Uh, and so somehow this book was serving a dual purpose. It was to celebrate and commemorate Native history and individuals and Native senses of place, because there's also town names that are used as a title for hymns. But then the content is actually pretty much just straightforward Christian content uh, in terms of, you know, as far as hymnody goes in the 19th century. Another example of how this works is uh, with Samson Ockham, who, who tells a story about how there's an old Indian man who uh, had a knife with a hand on a blade, and he was using it, and the blade broke, and so he simply got another uh, knife and strapped it to the old handle and used it until that blade broke as well, and then he went and got another knife and did the same thing until he had six blades, and or six handles and one blade, and 
for Occam, this was sort of a representation of how natives combine Christian ideas with um, native traditional culture. And even at the end of the book, I interview the medicine woman from the Mashantaka Pequot Reservation, Laughing Woman, who talks about how she blends traditional practices uh, with um, ideas about Christianity and Christian practices. And so, in a sense, there's a continuity from um, start to end in the book in terms of thinking about how I'm trying to reconceptualize ideas of conversion. And again, this isn't new for the field uh, necessarily, but it is a, a highly contextual way of rethinking the conversion paradigm into something that allows for a lot more negotiation back and forth uh, of, of taking on practices in surprising ways and then blending them. But that blending is never stable. It's never a solid synthesis. It always is, is ongoingly negotiated. And I think that that's why I start with this idea of the um, the Pequot Medicine Bundle. It, it occurs to me that you're not only undermining uh, this traditional paradigm of conversion, but but another um, idea that's circulated around Indian people uh, frequently, at least certainly in the later period that I'm I'm more, uh, I'm more familiar with, which is this idea of of an Indian person being caught between two worlds. You know, mm-hmm. are they fully in the Indian world? Are they fully in the Christian world? Um, that's a theme that is that is constant. It goes right up into the 20th century. Um, it also seems like the, these stories you're telling and the framework you're advancing here also kind of challenges that idea, that there are two discrete worlds uh, that people are trapped between. Rather, it seems that people are, are picking and choosing, accommodating, negotiating in, in different ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that some people find themselves in this sort of two-world mentality more than others, perhaps. Um, and again, in the 18th century, the most paradigmatic example of this is Samson Ockham, this ordained Presbyterian Mohegan minister uh, who essentially converts to Christianity or at least adopts Christian practices and, and ideas in um, the First Great Awakening and then kind of works this out of the course of his life and ends up you know, uh, being sort of distant from some of the same individuals, the same non-native individuals and ministers and so forth that he had initially associated himself with. But not everyone had that experience of being sort of born in a particular moment in time in a native reservation and then uh, being fully trained in sort of a white non-native way and then becoming an ordained minister. And then even like Acham does, he travels in the 1760s to England and the British Isles and travels for almost two years and preaches in front of vast crowds and raises a ton of money for Eliezer Wheelock School, which later becomes Dartmouth. And uh, so he is somewhat unique. And actually, that was one of the points in the book as well, is we've used Occam too much to represent not only the religious changes that uh, other people took, uh, other, Native, other Native Americans experienced in this time period, um, but also in terms of his level of education and engagement with non-Native uh, culture. But having said that, I do think there is um, a level of cultural interaction that we also miss. So if Occam is sort of maybe too extreme of, a, of an example in terms of his education, his sort of travels and his preaching and so forth, it's not the case uh, 
that the opposite is true, that everybody else was simply reservation bound and never had points of interaction with the outside world. One of the intriguing things that I think I try to highlight in the book and that I really impress on my students is that no matter if you're native or if you are non-native colonists, you have, um, again, not a shared world like a middle ground, but like there's points of overlap that constantly take place in the 18th century. You can't live in New London or in Providence or somewhere else around New England without being aware of Native presence, without thinking about these things, without seeing Natives in your town or city, um, whether they're kind of selling their different wares or whether they're taking someone to court or whether they're serving in the, the household of, of a prominent local figure. Um, and so in that way, uh, Natives are participating in this world. I want to talk for a moment about um, Native lifeways in New England, particularly before colonial imbalance or, or large-scale proselytization. You write that at a basic level, Native Americans did not separate out this abstract category of their life known as religion, but that traditions were virtually synonymous with their cultures. Can you talk a little bit more about that distinction? Yeah, I mean, I think this is, again, not new to me necessarily. Uh, I'm trying to reflect in many ways what Native scholars themselves have been describing, but also what anthropologists and what historians and archaeologists have sort of collectively been coming to an understanding of over the past couple of decades. And this relates to my attempt to push back against the notion of conversion as well, which is to say that we've approached this question too often through the lens of Western Judeo-Christianity uh, or sort of Western religious ideas and even maybe post-19th century ideas about what religion is. And um, so if you've got those lenses on, and certainly people in the colonial period had these lenses on, you look around and what do you look for? You look for sort of systematic approaches to religious ideas. You look for a systematic way to um, install religious figures and put them in positions of prominence and power. And you look for systematic rituals and you look for texts and you look for all these different things that um, natives may have had in some some form, but certainly not that were recognizable to either colonists or in many ways, um, late 19th and early 20th century historians. And so again, we're, we're beyond that, I think, in the field. Um, and I'm simply trying to underscore the way in which uh, even today, um, Native ideas about uh, sort of rituals and practices in the community are organized in ways that, that are less doctrinal, less intellectualized, less um, based around texts and ideas than we might expect even today. And so the idea within sort of, you know, the early modern Christian world that you need to learn to read, why, so you can read the Bible, uh, is, a, is a thoroughly ethnocentric notion of what religion looks like. And I think that for too long, historians have sort of picked up on that as well, or followed that as well. And so this idea that natives don't extract out from their ordinary life something they call religion is because... Uh, uh, and again, I know there's a danger here of, of becoming too sort of new agey in our view of what native cultures are, that they're always at every point religious and spiritual. That's not the point either. 
but that there was a more seamless integration uh, in terms of native religious and community and cultural practices. And so it's not like they said, oh, it's Sunday morning. We have to go do something religious, you know. It was that the communal events themselves were infused with ideas about the unseen world and these mediators between the seen and the unseen world and these other than human individuals or figures or spirits that were guarding over different areas of life, areas of life, and that you would, um, you know, pray to them and try to supplicate them or win their favor in certain ways through rituals or access the power that they had. All these things that might have sort of faint resonances with sort of a Christian framework of, of these kinds of um, experiences and ideas, but felt very different, looked very different, and um, astute colonists recognized this. I think Roger Williams is one of these people that observes uh, different kinds of rituals, and even though he's gridding all this Narragansett activity through his own Christianity, still ends up reflecting in this 19, uh, sorry, uh, 1643, Akin to the Language of America, um, his observations about Narragansett spirituality. Uh, one of my uh, regrets, perhaps, in this section in the first chapter is that it would have been great to have more of um, present-day Native commentary on what this uh, culture-infused spirituality or spirituality-infused culture looks like. Uh, I think that would have been a nice, a nice complement to uh, essentially the texts and the oral histories that I'm drawing from that might reflect um, some of the non-native biases i love this this story uh, you tell about a drought in the 1730s when um, colonists were extremely alarmed to find uh, some narragansetts praying to what they say is the devil uh, to which an an elderly uh, indian shaman explained that the the drought the corn dying was the result of an evil power and and so it made perfect sense to pray to this evil power you pray to the person that's causing you all this heartache. So uh, Christians weren't terribly keen on this when they saw it, but I, I think that there's some fascinating stories here that, that do, in, in another way, seem completely logical. You know? Yeah, and again, you know, so much of how we think about these things were influenced not only by the colonists and their perspective on it, but also because Judeo kind of Christian ideas about the dichotomous divisions between, you know, a good God and a bad God or God and and the devil or heaven and hell and all these things. And uh, the appropriate way to approach these things in terms of you pray to God, but you don't pray to the devil. right? I mean, still influenced by this, I think. And and I, I think this is one of the kind of decolonizing critiques that native scholars have today is that we haven't gotten beyond these kinds of presumptions um, in the field. And so I'm sympathetic to that. And I don't know that this solves it necessarily, but it certainly uh, tried to lean in this direction. But yeah, I agree with you. Why not? Yeah, sure. Someone's responsible for something, whether it's, you know, a good spirit or a bad spirit, uh, you want to deal directly to the source. And, And there is a, and I think this highlights that there is a logic to native culture in general, but also native religiosity, an internal logic that colonists never bothered to unpack. Uh, And of course, scholars have done a a slightly better job over time. Um, But paying attention to that logic is one of the keys, I think, and being in conversation with people today is one of the keys of understanding it through a native lens and perspective that sets aside this kind of framework that we're all used to, and uh, which often includes a a framework of sort of sort of judgment or incomprehensibility or something but yeah so so 
English evangelistic attempts, they, they do start early, but they move in, in fits and starts. You point out that the English were also quite aware of the century-long precedent of Spanish Catholic mission work, but they weren't terribly keen on it. They fell into some of the same patterns, but they wanted to uh, craft their own theological, cultural, imperial framework. Uh, first of all, why did talk a bit about some of these early evangelistic attempts, the New England Company, for instance, uh, why they took up this work, and, and if they were successful initially up until, let's, you know, let's say when we get to the Great Awakening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the question of why they took this up is, is really intriguing. Um, Christina Bross has, has this um, book, Dry Bones and Indian Sermons, in which she uh, makes the argument that essentially the evangelization of Native Americans really only became a point of self-identification or identity for English colonists in the 1640s uh, after it was clear that the Puritans would gain some sort of ascendancy in um, the English Civil War. And so the whole notion of the Puritans needing to come to New England to set up a godly community in the first place was undermined by the fact that they could do it now in England. (laughs) And so uh, whether or not you actually believe that argument, she's pointing at something very, very important, which is there is a moment in time where this becomes more important. You have, if you go back to the founding of Plymouth in 1620, uh, 15, 20 years before there's any real sustained attempt. Uh, Roger Williams claims he could have, but he didn't. And it's not until John Elliott and Thomas Mayhew and Martha's Vineyard. John Elliott is in uh, what's now eastern Massachusetts. Rossbury is where he was a minister. But there's any sustained attempts. And there are evangelization attempts by Elliott and Mayhew before the New England Company was founded in 1649. And once it is founded, it's founded by independent and Puritan um, churchmen in England, in London uh, in particular, who want to support this work. And a lot of controversy over whether or not this company, uh, which was essentially a, um, a company that was trying to, to create profit to send over to New England. So they would they owned properties all around, you know, London and England and collected rent and so forth, and then sent the money or sent supplies more likely often to missionaries. A lot of controversy about the finances of this operation because a lot of it was funneled to individuals and to schools. Harvard was a big recipient of a lot of this money. An Indian college was built in 1655, lasted until the 1690s, and really only five Native Americans were ever educated there. It's kind of one of the biggest, you know, kind of fundraising hoaxes in many ways in the colonial period, um, unless you count uh, Eliezer Wheelock as well in the 18th century. So this this idea of humanitarian individuals wanting to kind of uh, cast their lots or or fundraise and and support the evangelization of natives. Um, is is something that grows throughout the course of the colonial period. And you have the Anglicans, uh, they have uh, two different organizations at the turn of the 18th century to do the same thing. The problem is, on the ground, it's very, very difficult work. And uh, people who actually try this know this. And there's a, a, a good amount of, of headway that's made by Elliot and Mayhew, um, but only within a, a restricted sort of sense. Um, Elliot, one of the biggest things that he does is he phoneticizes, this is John Elliot uh, out of Roxbury, phoneticizes the Massachusetts or the Wampanoag language and uh, begins to translate using um, some Indian servants that were nearby and a few who were his own, translates into Massachusetts language some of the prominent um, texts of the day, the practice of piety and uh, even the Psalter and eventually the New Testament and the Old Testament and the entire Bible in 1663. 
And he set up praying towns and began educating Native Americans, not only in sort of Christian doctrine, but also began to um, educate them in terms of how to read their own phoneticized language. And this actually works. Uh, There are several generations of Native leaders who grow up uh, in eastern Massachusetts and also also out in Cape Cod and Martha's Vineyard who can read uh, Wampanoag in Massachusetts, and they can write in it, and we have petitions and letters that they've written in their own phoneticized language that Ellie essentially has created out of nothing. Uh, so there's a, a lot of really interesting stuff happening. Um, and so by the time you hit the 1800s, I'm um, sorry, the, the, the 18th century, uh, the 1700s, you have, um, especially in eastern Massachusetts and uh, sort of Cape Cod and the islands, you have um, dozens of Indian churches, Indian schools that are run and staffed by these uh, native leaders who are literate and fluent and theologically trained. It's really fascinating. What you don't have is any of that activity in Connecticut, Rhode Island, or Long Island, New York, or Western Massachusetts. And so that's why I focused the book on that region, because it essentially that whole evangelization process, the whole educative process, had not taken root in the region that I'm looking at. And so that's what I wanted to sort of understand is what happens uh, in that sort of failure and how and when does it change? And so the book essentially um, summarizes the 17th century developments, but really looks at the post-King Philip's Ward period, really post-1800, 1700 period, and tries to understand that development. And what you have is you have what I call um, sort of the second wave of evangelization. Uh, so the 17th century, Elliot Mayhew was the first wave. You have this renewed attempt to evangelize these native groups that come back on the radar of uh, these humanitarian folks and also local colonial governors and so forth who want to see these people Christianize and essentially, uh, I guess, uh, you know, subjugate or subdue in the process politically and also culturally. And, um, so I, I, I look at how that plays out uh, up through the Great Awakening and beyond. Mm. So maybe we should tackle the Great Awakening uh, a bit, and, and that seems another major event that stands in the, in the middle of your narrative. How have historians made sense of this moment, and, and how does your work uh, intervene or change the story of what came to be known as the First Great Awakening? Well, I think this is really, again, one of the the most precise historiographical interventions that the book makes and why I got into uh, the 18th century precisely in the first place. Because as I was reading what little literature there is on Native Americans in southeastern New England in the early 18th century, I realized that basically people would say, oh, the Narragansetts got soundly defeated in uh, King Philip's War in the 1670s. And uh, then suddenly they all converted in the First Great Awakening in the 1740s, and there's nothing in between, no sort of human process to get from point A to point B. And there was not much out there on Native participation in the Great Awakening itself. I mean, really you could list on kind of one hand the number of articles that really dealt with Native religious engagement in the First Great Awakening in New England. And Bill Simmons, who's here at Brown and, and a, a very wise mentor in some ways um, of mine now that I'm here, uh, was one of the ones who had written on Narragansett, but also the wider Native participation, and had framed this in sort of a total conversion in the Great Awakening kind of narrative. So Native Americans were resistant until the first Great Awakening, when boom, they all converted uh, the whole community at once. So I, I, it, it seemed too simplistic, and I learned a, quite a lot from Bill's scholarship on this, and he's moved on since then to other things, obviously. 
Um, but in the process of trying to understand how to get from point A to point B, what I realized is through this process of the second wave of evangelization, there's a slow buildup and a slow kind of almost like a pre-Christianization or an actual partial Christianization that takes place. Native leaders in Rhode Island, Connecticut, Long Island, Western Massachusetts begin to invite these missionaries on their lands. Why? Not to preach, but to educate their children. And so by the time you even hit the 1730s, before the Great Awakening begins, you have Native children and teenagers who are literate, who know Christian doctrine, who know Christian theology. And to some of them are, are uh, attending local churches already, and some of them even being baptized. And so the Great Awakening is not does not come out of, of nowhere. It is um, uh, sort of uh, it, it is an event in itself, but native participation in that is a logical extension in some ways out of this second wave of evangelization that takes place in the 1720s and 1730s. What's surprising? I mean, so that was I think an important contribution. Just that build up to the Great Awakening itself. But then what I found is in the Awakening itself, Native participation was far from universal. And one way I tried to measure this was through actual um, Native participation in local churches, local white churches. And I know it's an, it's an imperfect um, measure or gauge because it doesn't capture the many ways in which Natives could show up to meetings or maybe internalize different ideas without actually joining churches. But you got to start somewhere. And so this seemed like a very concrete way to look at specific church records and to chart the presence uh, and, as I found, departure of natives from these churches. So what I found is that uh, looking at all the white churches that I could possibly find records for that mentioned natives, which uh, there were, you know, a dozen or two, but not hundreds, uh, what I found is when you average all the numbers, only around 25 percent of American Indian adults in this time period, uh, in the 1740s, um, join as full members in local white churches. And probably uh, between ranges, but 40 to 50 percent um, affiliate in any one way, whether through infant baptism, adult baptism, um, getting married, or joining as a member. And so that, that was interesting, right? The numbers aren't as great as we sure. But then what I really found intriguing is there's a specific timetable for this involvement. So it's a buildup in the 1730s. It spikes sharply in 1741, 1742, which is also the height of the Great Awakening more generally uh, around New England. And then it drops off pretty dramatically starting in 1743. And by 1750, I, you are hard-pressed to find any evidence of Native Americans involved in these white mostly congregational churches. Can I can I ask you a question here real quick? I mean, do they, and these churches wanted uh, full Native participants, is that right? I mean, was that something that most or every church welcomed into their membership? It was a mixed bag. So the leaders themselves uh, certainly wanted this participation. Missionaries, Native, uh, I'm sorry, mis- white missionaries, white ministers, um, always, always said, we want the conversion mm-hmm. They weren't treated so well um, within these churches, which is partly why they pull out. And so you could really ask questions, and I think this is what you're getting at, whether or not the average church member in, let's say, Connecticut in the 1740s felt comfortable having an an extra five or six Native Americans Mm -hmm. in the the church context. But certainly um, there's also motivation for ministers to want Native American presence because, again, we talked about the New England Company and one of the fishy ways in which the funding is if you 
devoted an extra hour a week to Native education or preaching or had a Native American come to your church, you could request extra funding from the New England company. So there's a financial incentive to to do this kind of missionary work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's very, very clear that Native Americans uh, were not accepted as equals within these churches, within these white churches, which is partially why you you see them being kicked out. You see them being brought before uh, the church elders for, you know, uh, fornication, so-called, or other kinds of um, sexual deviancy or sins or whatever else. And um, some of them are kicked out, some of them repent. But eventually, by the 1750s especially, it seems, and, and even later, they're gone. Uh, not all of them, but the vast majority. So whatever we thought of the Great Awakening in terms of this moment of the mass Christianization, as gauged through church membership, it was a pretty uh, fleeting and tentative enterprise. Mm. Now, but there were some um, independent Indian congregations in this period. Is that right? Yeah, so this is where I mean, it was just a series of surprises, I guess, for me, uh, that once I, I was able to track these Native individuals through the process of joining churches and then leaving again, what I found is, and you, I, I found several both white but also Native leaders who give this progression, essentially uh, Natives join local white churches, they become disaffected for a variety of reasons. Sometimes that's it. They stop joining or they stop attending any Christian churches in general, and that was it. Sometimes they would leave the local established white congregational church and join a um, sort of a white separatist church, uh, so more of a radical revivalist church in this time period. And then eventually that became untenable, and so they would leave entirely and sometimes, again, uh, stop Christian affiliation entirely. But there was a small sub-segment of natives from these different reservation communities I'm looking at in the 1740s, 1750s, and 1760s that began to form these native separate churches that other historians have looked at kind of piecemeal. And I tried to provide a systematic chapter on this emergence. Look at a few of these native leaders like Santa Makam, also uh, Samuel Niles and Samuel Ashpoe and other people as well. And uh, so it's tricky because, yes, they do emerge. They do happen almost every Indian reservation in southeastern New England by the 1760s has an Indian separate uh, congregation on its lands. And yet it's not representative of the entirety of Native views on Christianity. And so I, I try to balance it somehow in the book by saying, uh, yes, there was rejection, but it was not complete. Yes, there was embrace, but it was not complete. Uh, and it's that dynamism and that diversity of Native responses that I think perhaps we've ever we've ever looked. And again, thinking about the way that Sansom Occam has stood in for all Natives in this time period in New England. Mm-hmm. One of the ways in which we've missed this. So I've been talking with uh, Linford Fisher about his new book, The Indian Great Awakening, Religion and the Shaping of Native Cultures in Early America. I have a few, I guess, broader questions I'd like to ask you as we get towards the end of our discussion. Uh, you know, I've always thought about New England as a part of the country that's particularly interested and, and celebratory of its own regional history. Uh but as I was thinking about this book, I pulled out a an, an copy of one of the first sort of surveys of Indian history I read. It's a book by James Wilson called The Earth Shall Weep. And, and he writes that perhaps more than anywhere else in North America, that the coastal rim of the northeastern United States seems to deny its Indian past. 
the Indians seem to survive merely as part of New England's love affair with autumn melancholy, bittersweet figments living on rather whisperly an annual Thanksgiving celebration and the litany of melodic Algonquin place names that still haunt the landscape. Maybe that's a bit of an overstatement, but um, but I'm wondering what is that tension you see between a, a place like New England that is so aware of its its long and illustrious history in the United States, but which natives don't come into the narrative that, that often. And I guess in, in answering that, I'm also just curious um, – you know, what sort of reception the book has garnered in, in the short time it's been out there. And, and you know, in I, I've looked on the web and I noticed you did you've done a few public talks uh, and just to talk about how it's, you know, how it's received in New England. Yeah. So several things, I guess, that you bring up, all of which are really great um, in terms of New England's own um, notion of itself in relation to its native history. Uh, you know, I think the quote that you gave is is not um, perhaps a, a bit romanticized, but um, there's a sense in which it's not only possible, but it's the normal experience to live in New England today and have no sense of ongoing Native presence. <laughs> I think that's really, it's a tragedy, frankly. Unless you live around the Narragansett Reservation in Charlestown, unless you live close to the Mashantucka Pequots and can see the towering uh, casino um, off in the distance, or unless you are out on Cape Cod and happen to be close to the Mashpees or out on Martha's Vineyard and, and uh, you know, out at, close to one of the, the Wampanoag um, towns, reservations, um, you, you could entirely forget that this history is still ongoing. And one of the things that I have found is in talking with people around New England about these histories, about this history, is that I think there is some surprise that uh, Native nations still exist and, and are around today. And and not only that, but continue to have vast, um, not only grievances, but interpretational differences in terms of this history. And again, that's why the book's epilogue is really important to me, because it puts that in people's faces. But second of all, in my talks, I try to emphasize this as well. Uh, and I, what I find in as I'm out there talking about this kind of stuff, and I end on the epilogue, I also like to bring in the doctrine of discovery, which is not in the book, but something that I think needs to be talked about more often, this idea that dates back even to uh, the 15th century, this idea of the right of the conquest of the Americas based on the idea that natives themselves were not Christian gets ensconced in American uh, U.S. legal code in 1823, Johnson v. McIntosh, and uh, gets repeated up to the 20th and even 21st century. Yeah, it was just cited by the Supreme Court in an in a Iroquois land claim in New York, I, I think, you know, five or six years ago. A lot of work by the academic community on this. Um, and so I mentioned stuff like this also, the United States Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and how the U.S. is essentially one of uh, the only you know, major Western industrialization, industrialized nation that has not signed on yet. And I, so I mentioned this at the end of the talks, and I, of course, this is what people want to talk about. Um, but I think the reason why they jump to this is not because they don't like the colonial period, they don't like the past. I think they're surprised at the way in which there is a point of connection between the colonial period and the past. Uh, I'm sorry, the colonial period and the present. And another way in which I try to make this connection and, and what people want to talk about as well is just the recent canonization of Kateri Tekakwitha, this uh, Native American uh, now saint, um, 17th century young um, Mohawk Kanawaki uh, girl 
converted to Catholicism and then died a, a young um, death uh, from from disease and from very, very early on was sort of revered in Native circles and was sort of the, the de facto patron saint of North American Natives. Um, and, and the way in which her, the reception among the Native community of her canonization is very mixed in that uh, some Natives see her as selling out to Catholicism, to Christianity, and some Natives see her as embracing a both and model that they want to embrace too of remaining native but still um recognizing the importance of christianity in their lives and so i think that that also uh is fascinating to me the way that people want to discuss these things in the present which i i love i think it's really good in terms of new england though um a book that comes to mind as you were talking is Jeannie o'brien's book the uh, first things and last things which mm. is actually a look at the way in which New England towns celebrated their bicentennials in the 19th century. And you had this really odd um, situation where they would have a speech bemoaning the sort of disappearance of the original inhabitants of the region. And then they would have a local native person come up in full regalia and lead a dance or a song or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't, they could have disappeared and they're still <laughs> There's a sense in which I think New England, and I'm all across the country too, but New England has wrestled repeatedly, again, the cyclical idea throughout its history uh, with how, what to do with this past. Uh, and so I think the embrace of Thanksgiving and this peaceable notion of Puritans or pilgrims and uh, natives sitting down side by side and sharing a feast for three days, this is what Americans want to believe about the colonial past. And I guess people like myself and Native scholars and other people who work in the colonial period refuse to let that become the only way that Americans think about the colonial period and their relationship to Native Americans. It simply cannot um, stand in for the full story. There are moments of peaceability. There are moments of genuine cultural understanding and interaction. But there's also a ton of violence and a ton of misunderstanding, a ton of coercion. And those that's all part of the story. And so I've highlighted, I've tried to highlight Native activity and agency and creativity and adaptation and uh, integration and um, transformation through the lens of themes like religion and also land and cultural sovereignty and so forth. Um, but if you, I think you can't walk away from my book without saying, hmm, that's a lot more complicated than I thought, and I'm not sure that that was all very good for Natives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> point gets out, then even though it seems very basic uh, in terms of a wider audience, I think that's quite good. Yeah. So I want to end where you do uh, with this Mohegan church off the uh, Norwich, New London turnpike, not far from uh, the gleaming towers of the Mohegan Sun Casino. I actually had the opportunity to visit there for the first time. Uh, even though I grew up in the New York area, I was just visited for the first time for the Native American and Indigenous Studies Conference that was hosted there uh, in June. Um, but outside this church, uh, which, as you say, doesn't look so different than the thousands of other old churches across the region, uh, there hangs a single solitary eagle feather. Uh, the cross and the feather, which is also, as we talked about earlier on the cover of the book, you write, is, is pregnant with meaning, with history, and with possibilities. And uh, just tell us a little bit more about that and why you chose to end there. Mm-hmm. Well, I think in some ways it's sort of parallels what I started with, with the medicine bundle, sort of this juxtaposition of two symbols, um, two religiously and spiritually powerful symbols 
that uh, are side by side in a way that might surprise the average person who doesn't understand the way in which Native American religions and ideas and uh, practices are incorporative. Uh, that, that is that they blend very, very easily without much intellectual discomfort. And uh, when I walked into the Mohican church and, and looked around and was somewhat disappointed by the high-backed wooden chairs and the, you know, kind of uh, regular windows down the side and the, hymn, the, the hymnals and everything else and the picture of an old, you know, 19th century white guy hanging in the front kind of vestibule and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then suddenly saw on the front um, this this very traditional cross and above it, hanging uh, uh, just this perfect eagle feather. Um, and then I asked about it. I asked uh, Melissa Tentequich and Zobel, who was um, guiding my tour through the church, asked her about it, and she uh, began to describe what it means to the, to the people who attend there um, in terms of carving out Native perspective and Native understanding of both power, but also religiosity. Uh, the eagle feather is, is since the late 19th century, um, a symbol of pan-Indian identity. But historically, dating back to the colonial period and far beyond, within the Mohegan, Pequot, and Narragansett communities has been viewed as an emblem of uh, not only spiritual power, but also uh, sort of a teaching tool of morality. And I had a, a Pequot, a Mashantaka Pequot spiritual um, leader who told me, uh, that you can tell uh, you know, children, teach children right and wrong simply by using the, the two-toned eagle feather, the white and the brown, the good and the dark, or the good and the bad. And so all kinds of reasons why the eagle feather in itself is important, but the fact that it was in this sort of sacred space and in my mind, completely dominated. I mean, the cross is bigger, but the eagle feather is so... Um, by non-native standards, so out of place that it, it, you're, you're drawn to it right away to, to construct that space in a way that is um, uniquely native. Well, Dr. Fisher, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure. You've been listening to a discussion with Linford D. Fisher, author of The Indian Great Awakening, Religion and the Shaping of Native Cultures in Early America, published in 2012 by Oxford University Press. You can find us on the web at newbooksinnativeamericanstudies.com, where you can listen to all the past interviews free of charge, or on iTunes, where you can download the podcast. We're also on Facebook, where you can leave comments, questions, or suggestions for new books you'd like to hear on this program. For the New Books Network, I'm Andrew Epstein. Thanks for listening.